When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi everyone, Connor here. If you don't know already, we have launched Intelligence Squared Premium. For bonus content, early access listens and exclusive extras, just head to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the episode description. And if you're an Apple Podcasts person, hit subscribe for the bonus extras from your podcasts app too. Thanks again for all your support. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. Today on the podcast, we're joined by award-winning author and academic Catherine Rundle. Drawing on her magical new book, The Golden Mole and Other Living Treasure, Catherine is joined by environmental historian and broadcaster Eleanor Rosman Baraclough to discuss the individual strangeness and beauty of the animal kingdom and the fragility of our natural world. Let's join the conversation now. Hello everyone. Hi, it's it's such a pleasure to be here. Welcome to this Intelligence Squared event. I am Eleanor Rosman Barraclough and my guest today is Catherine Rundle. She is a deeply impressive person and has many, many wonderful um, strings to her bow, including the fact that she's a fellow of All Souls College at the University of Oxford and a best-selling author. Her books for children have been translated into more than 30 languages and have won multiple awards. She's also the author of adult books, including the bestsellers Why You Should Read Children's Books, Even Though You Are So Old and Wise, and Super Infinite, The Transformations of John Donne, which is based on her PhD thesis. This is the reason we started late. I have two toddlers and I apologise. As if all this wasn't enough, we also, um, she also enjoys, she also enjoys night climbing and tightrope walking. She's a thoroughly delightful human being, so it's not even possible to have mean thoughts about her while wrestling with your own sense of comparative mediocrity and the fact that you can't get through a live broadcast without someone coming in and now screaming in the background. So there we go. Her latest book is The Golden Mole and Other Living Treasure, which is the subject of our conversation tonight. So Catherine, thank you so much for joining us here this evening. It is such a pleasure to have you. Um, Dan Snow says that it's among his proudest boasts that he was a massive fan of yours before you became a national treasure. And I'm going to slip in my own little boast here, which is that I got to see you in action over 10 years ago, speaking at an English faculty seminar room in Oxford University. And in fact, I found the email 
advertising the event, where apparently you were speaking about the publishing industry, the writing process, and why sometimes it's necessary to tie yourself to the desk with a skipping rope. (laughs) So tell us, how has your writing process changed over the years? Has it got any easier or do you still have a a skipping rope handy just in case? I no longer have a skipping rope as a key part of my writing process. It used to be that when I was very young, and I didn't really have deadlines. The only way to force myself to write would be to tie myself to my chair until I had finished whatever piece of work I was doing. I now have, if not willpower, the eyes of other people like editors on me, which does uh, make it slightly easier to force myself to work. So the the title, just to stick with that English faculty talk, because it was fantastic. I mean, you can see the person you are now in the person I I, I went to see all those years ago. And the fact that it's literally the only talk I remember ever going to when I was at Oxford in that period really says it all. It was magnificent. Um, So, so many moons ago, let's remember when we were young and we were fresh, um, your title was Hope and Compromise in Today's Publishing Industry. And it feels like those two words, hope and compromise, are also deeply relevant to your new book, The Golden Mole. So tell us more about how you came to write it and what you wanted to do in it. So The Golden Mole is a collection of 22 animals. The only criteria for inclusion was that the animal or a subspecies of the animal be endangered. But we live in a world of such peril that that is unfortunately not a way to whittle down at all. There is almost no creature, certainly no vertebrate, for which that is not true. And so I wanted it to be a kind of almost like a bestiary, a collection of unfamiliar creatures that would lay out some of the wildest and strangest wonders of the living world and then also familiar creatures where it would offer something more like a sense that we can make the familiar strange because one of the things I write about quite a lot in the book is the necessity for wonder. It quotes G.K. Chesterton, um, the world will never starve for want of wonders but only for want of wonder but I don't mean passive wonder, I mean political, active, informed, galvanic wonder. And I think the only way to continually exist in a salute to the wonder that the world deserves is to continue to learn about it. Because you can't be wondered by something that you already know, and so therefore curiosity seems to me a political imperative. I I couldn't agree more. Honestly, I learned so much reading your book like every page it just comes out at you but just so beautifully I mean it's exquisitely written of course it is it's, it's you but it's also exquisitely illustrated by Talia Baldwin and in fact we're going to be sharing some of her images throughout this event so tell me why was it so important to make this book so visually arresting it's like yeah it's like a medieval bestiary it's like this jeweled work of art and how did you go about collaborating with Talia? So I had loved her work. And when I had started thinking about the book, the book is called The Golden Mole and Other Living Treasure. And if it has a politics, the politics is this. We are bad as humans as identifying what is and is not treasure. But that is not set in stone. That can change. That was something that was being uh, written about 100 years ago by John Maynard Keynes, the sense that we have not been good at working out what is that which we owe our 
finest and most focused attention and protection to. So I wanted all of the creatures to be black and white and gold, so that this idea that the truest treasure is that which lives would be rendered visually. And we thought that Talia has this beautiful mix of, of realism, whereby the creatures she draws do look like she draws them, but she also has a sense of character and flair. We wanted them to feel a little bit strange because the project is in some way an estrangeling. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. And um, I, I have to say that the toddler who interrupted our event at the start has been engrossed in those images all afternoon. I mean, they are... They are, yeah, they are magnificent works of art to surround these beautiful words. Um, let's meet some of the animals then in your modern day bestiary. Let's start with the wombat. I don't think I've ever fallen in love so fast with any living creature as I did when reading about this one. So please, could you give us a taster, read a bit from your book? I would love to. The wombat. Dante Gabriel Rossetti wrote in 1869, is a joy, a triumph, a delight, a madness. The painter's house at 16 Cheney Walk in Chelsea had a large garden, which he began to stock with wild animals. He acquired, among other beasts, wallabies, kangaroos, a raccoon and a zebu. He looked into the possibility of keeping an African elephant, but concluded that at £400 it was unreasonably priced, he bought a toucan, which it was rumoured, although I think this is apocryphal, uh, that he trained to ride a llama. But above all, he loved wombats. He had two, one named Top after William Morris, whose nickname Topsy came from his head of tight curls. In September, Rosie wrote a letter that the wombat had successfully interrupted a seemingly uninterruptible monologue by John Ruskin by burrowing between the critic's waistcoat and chest. Rossetti drew the wombats over and over. He sketched his mistress, who was William Morris's wife, Jane, walking one on a leash, and I would urge people to go and Google this. In the image, both Jane and the wombat have small halos, and they both look irate, which is just magnificent. Can you tell us, I mean, why, why the halos? I did look up, it's the most incredible picture I've ever seen. What's going on there? I think he had a sense that they have some kind of otherworldly pull because, of course, wombats do have a, a kind of grace to them that we have often loved them for the sweetness of their face. Theodore Adorno, in the aftermath of the Second World War, the man who raised the question of can there be poetry after Auschwitz, he wrote to the zoo saying, could we not have two wombats because they had brought him such joy in his youth and he thought they would bring joy again. There is something um, faintly alchemic about them. Even in your um, the the image, um, the Talia's picture, it almost looks like the wombat has a halo on top of its head. There, it's it's just. I mean, was it a challenge not to turn an animal so well as you say, sweet faced and rotund into a cute character from a Disney cartoon? How do you balance adorability with dignity? So this is the thing I think about a lot: is human anthropomorphizing a good thing? Because I think. I want to write in a way that will be memorable because it is only by being memorable that we can root ideas under people's skin. And that's what people have been doing when they've been trying to write for 2000 years. But there is a danger to writing about creatures in 
in idiosyncratic and fictional ways, in, in the sense that, for instance, the wolf, the fact that we have always chosen it as a way to sort of pour our furies and anxieties into it, from Red Riding Hood to Ovid to Ivan Zarevich and the Grey Wolf, it is, most scholars think, directly connected to that fairy tale vision of the wolf that led to the extinction of several breeds of wolf in Europe and worldwide. And so I think there is always an urgent need to say, these things are beautiful, and I will sometimes describe them in human terms because that is the way the human mind works. But they are not ours. They are not us. They are themselves, and emphatically so. And the book works around this idea that the greatest lie we ever told was that the world is ours and at our disposal to do as we will with it. And I want always to in these pieces, try to remind myself as much as anything, the world is infinitely wilder and stranger than we can know it. Our knowledge is beautiful and remarkable, but the world itself is so much more so that our knowledge barely touches the edges of the truth. And so I want always to be careful to salute that, the unknown of the animal world. And it's funny because, well, as you say, the wolf has plenty of negative fairy tale connotations that might explain it. The wombat is ridiculously cute by any standards, and yet it's not an altogether happy story at all when it comes to wombat-human interactions, which we quickly realise is a major theme in your work. So, I mean, even Napoleon's wife, Josephine, you say, she had a pet wombat, but it was the, what was the, the sole survivor of an ill-fated voyage, is that right? Exactly that. So she had a, a great passion for a wombat. And um, the famed explorer, uh, Nicholas Baudin, he went in 1803 uh, to what was then New Holland, now Australia, and uh, they lost 10 kangaroos and emus and Baudin himself began spitting blood. They nearly lost two sailors and huge amounts of the creatures that they had seized with the kind of clumsy and unfocused hunger that we have so often evinced. Our love is very great for these wild creatures, but often our love is deadly. And the book is in some ways a litany of the ways in which our desire to be close to these creatures. You know, uh, Josephine longed to hold a wombat in her arms, and she was able to do so, but at the at great cost. Well, let's turn now to... Um... A creature you wouldn't necessarily want to be holding in your arms, to put it mildly. It's rather less cute and cuddly, isn't it? The Greenland shark. Um, it's not the most prepossessing of animals. Tell me about the eye worms and the urea. <laughs> so the Greenland shark, one of the least beautiful creatures, perhaps, in the ocean. Um, it smells very strongly of urine, such that it was said to be descended from Sedna, um, from her, um, her urine pot, the goddess of the sea. Um, and it has, it's partially blind. It swims very, very low down and dark, eight Eiffel Towers deep. And it has little worms that sort of float off its eyes like uh, parasitic confetti. And so it doesn't have obvious loveliness. But I have been totally undone by this creature the more you find out about it the more you the more you come to love it yeah I mean it is extraordinary to the point of almost being a work of science fiction isn't it I mean can you read something that will illustrate that it's 
just, I didn't know any of this about the Greenland shark. So I was writing this article uh, during the beginning of the pandemic. Um, in 1606, a devastating pestilence swept through London. The dying were boarded up in their homes and a decree went out that the theatres and the bear baiting and the brothels be closed. They had plague merchants who had three-foot wands to swack at people who weren't social distancing. And it was then that Shakespeare wrote one of his very, very few references to the plague. And he wrote, good men's lives expire before the flowers in their caps, dying before they sicken. And as he wrote those words, a Greenland shark that is still alive today swam through the northern seas. And it was at the time about 100 years old. But a Greenland shark can live up to 500 years. So its great-grandparents would have lived, its parents would have been old enough to have lived alongside the Caccio and its great-great-grandparents alongside Julius Caesar. And so for thousands of years, the Greenland sharks have swum in silence while above them the world has burned and rebuilt and burned again. And I find that idea of something that moves slowly and living through the darkness of the water I find that remarkable. It's beautiful. Thank you. Once again, the Greenland shark, as we say, it's a theme. They've very much fallen prey to human ingenuity and greed. You, you have an astonishing description of paint on the side of Norwegian fishing huts that is incredibly vibrant 50 years after it's been painted because it has shark oil in it. But for you, they're also a symbol of hope, aren't they? Yes, hope with caveats. But the idea says at the end, um, I'm glad not to be a Greenland shark. I don't have enough thoughts to fill 500 years. But I find the very idea of them hopeful because they will see us pass through whichever spinning chaos we might currently be living through and the crash that will come after and they will live through the currently unimagined things that will come after that. The transformations and revelations and possible, possible liberations. That's their beauty and it's breathtaking that they go on. They're the closest thing to eternal that this world has to offer. And I think the huge caveat, of course, is they go on for as long as human degradation does not encroach on their oceans. Um, they go on if we will take the actions which are amply available and ready for us to take to sustain the space that the Greenland shark needs to swim in its half a thousand years per life. Well, let, let's return to the cuddly side of the animal kingdom. Tell me about the utter, utter delight that is a lemur ball. <laughs> So the lima ball is one of the very finest things in existence. The lima ball, I'm going to read just a little bit here. It's probably best not to take advice direct and unfiltered from the animal kingdom, but lemurs, I think, are the exception. They live in matriarchal troops with an alpha female at their head. And when ring-tailed lemurs are cold or frightened, or when they want to bond, they group together in a furry mass known as a lemur ball, 
forming a black and white sphere that ranges in size from a football to a bicycle wheel or bigger. And they intertwine their paws and hands and they press against one another's walnut-sized, swiftly beating hearts. And to see it feels an injunction of sorts, to find a lima ball of one's own. Honestly, I don't know about you, if I'm reincarnated, I'm coming back as a lima. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I don't... Well, I don't think you've met a Greenland shark, but you have met a lemur, haven't you? How did that go? I have. I spent a little bit of my childhood in Madagascar and we went to visit the lemurs and she did try to bite me, uh, but she was right to do so because we have done very little to uh, endear ourselves to the lemur. She was remarkable in her beauty. They do have a kind of, um, a kind of yellow, wide-eyed vibrancy and they, uh, she had a little baby riding on her back. Monkeys, of course, often ride on the front, but lemurs tend to ride on the back like a sort of miniature Lester Piggott. Um, and she was, she was a shining thing. So we, we mentioned Greenland sharks. They live possibly anywhere on Earth, as you, as you put it, um, if the ocean goes deep enough. But lemurs are the opposite end of the scale, aren't they? Tell, tell us, how did they end up? in Madagascar and only in Madagascar. That is, I think, the most astonishing thing about lemurs, that they survived at all. So they are only found in Madagascar, or I believe Richard Branson is trying to breed them in one of his private islands to be wild and free there, but for currently just Madagascar. Um, and Madagascar was part of Guandanaland um, until 180 million years ago. And then the supercontinent began to split and the island began to drift eastwards from Africa, as we know. But the first lemur-like fossils date from 62 to about 50 million years ago, and they appear not in Madagascar, but in mainland Africa. So how did the lemurs get from mainland Africa to Madagascar? And there are many theories. One of them is island hopping um, or land bridges, but the dominant theory currently along lemur scholars is that they drifted there on floating rafts of vegetation and that when monkeys evolved enough on the mainland uh, with their superior adaptiveness and aggression to eradicate all lemurs in Africa, that lemurs had already reached Madagascar and Madagascar had continued to drift away from Africa out of reach of any oncoming monkeys. And it says, um, I've seen many things that I've loved but I don't think that I'll live to see anything as fine as a raft of lemurs sailing across the sea towards what looked until the arrival of humans like safety. So lovely. And also so sad because you say once again the humans came. Tell us then about these stories that humans associate, create around lemurs. What are the myths and legends that sprang up around them? So many of the stories around lemurs are profoundly positive, are the idea that lemurs and mankind are very closely interlinked. And those stories in Madagascar have often militated against the eating of lemurs and have been one of the ways that they were able to survive. There are 101 species, but of those, 24 are critically endangered because those great taboos of those stories, there is one about a man falling from certain death from a tree, is caught by a a, a large injury lemur and set upright on the ground. 
the taboos have been eroded by malnutrition. Almost always in households that eat lima, it is, uh, you find the children to be malnourished. And so one of the ways in which animal welfare can be informed is it always deeply interlinked with the urgent needs of children and of adults living in these in spaces. Um, they are not separate. To think of wildlife and humanity as living as separately has always been a mistake. And of course, the eye-eye, which I'm sure so many people will be aware of, that very remarkable small lemur that has its single middle finger protrudes far longer than the others. That lemur was believed to use that finger to gouge out the heart of, of sleepers. And that did result in that lemur being exempt from the taboo. And it was hunted, we thought, to extinction until um, we rediscovered them in 1969. So our stories have always worked both for and against animals. They have always had an unwieldy power, perhaps that we don't entirely have a hold on. Well, tell us then about the story uh, associated with the, the creature that might have the finest origin myth in the world. Tell us about the panda bear. So I love this. This is a story told in both China and Tibet, and it goes back several hundred years. And the story goes that when the panda first was young in, in time, they were all pure white. And a baby panda cub used to come and play with sheep and gamble freely, possibly because he believed that the sheep were also pandas. And one day a leopard came and threw itself at the, at the panda cub and the shepherdess, with great courage, fought off the leopard but was herself killed. And the whole panda family came to the shepherdess's funeral and as was the custom, they covered their hands and feet in back ash. And as they wept, they covered their eyes to wipe their tears. And as their wailing grew louder, they covered their ears so that they could not hear their own cries. And that is how the markings of the panda's black eyes and ears and paws have come to be, that it is an ongoing gesture towards fealty to bravery and to courage and to impulsive acts of love. I have always found that so very fine. It's the most touching story. It's, if pandas weren't touching enough, there you go. Right. Just... As if they needed to be more enchanting. We've made them more so, or rather, you know, yes. ancient Tibetan stories have. Well, if, if we're talking bears, though, we can't let a chance to mention John Donne slip through our fingers. Can we? <laughs> so, right, tell us what your favourite poet has to say about bears. So John Donne had a theory about bears that was very much the theory of the time. He wasn't being idiosyncratic. And he believed that a bear cub, when born, is a lump of solid amorphic flesh. And it came from Pliny, Pliny's idea, Pliny the Elder, in his Natural Histories, who wrote that um, it is a rude lump that the mother bear fashions little by little into some shape with licking. And so Donne offers this image as a kind of warning that when we fall in love, we should not, in the fever of that love, devour chunks of each other. He writes, love is a bare whelp born. If we are lick our love and force it new strange shapes to take, we err and of a lump a monster make. And it was an idea that really gripped the time. Um, Shakespeare uses it, um, the image of a sort of bear whelp when he says that Gloucester is like to a chaos or an unlicked bear whelp. 
And it was Thomas Brown, the great 17th century polymath and killjoy, who pointed out that what was actually happening was that the mother bear was tearing the amniotic sac that often surrounded the bear cub. So you did see a lump born and then you did see a baby cub emerge from the mother's mouth. But the connection we had missed. And that's true. That's Yes. So there was so often when you look at these sort of wild gestures that in the medieval period and the early Renaissance look as if they might be somewhat mad. People who believed that cranes flew to the moon to spend the winter there or that robins changed into a different kind of bird in the summer and then back again into robins. Those are not so mad at all once you look at the behaviour that we had to go on. They were elegant guesses. Um, And that's something that I keep trying to remind myself. There is so little now that we really know. You know, we we don't know, actually. We know storks don't winter on the moon, but we don't know how they know how to fly south. Nobody knows how they know. Maybe something to do with the Earth's gravitational pull, but we have no certainty about that. We just tell ourselves different stories now, don't we, as we try and work it out. It's funny, when I was reading this chapter, it it struck me that bears seem to be such a contradiction for humans. You know, bear attacks are reported in the media with an understandable frisson of fear. But we give our children stuffed teddy bears to cuddle. We read them stories about bears who love honey or marmalade. And we sing them songs about bears on picnics. What's going on there? (laughs) I think it has always been a fascination, hasn't it? If you look at the things that we have offered children as great comfort, they are either the things that are already immediately enchanting, like fluffy rabbits, or they are a gentling of something that we might otherwise find alarming. You know, I think if you think of tiny, adorable stuffed killer whales that you can buy at the Natural History Museum, and bears, this this rendering of that which might be wild and unwieldy in the imagination, rendering it calm, I think is something that we have, for better or worse, often found ourselves anxious to do. They're also just beautiful. I mean, bear cubs, adult bears, yes, terrifying. Bear cubs, absolutely malarially unhinged in their beauty you know I I would I would pay a a million pounds to own a bear cub I'm aware it wouldn't be ethical or remotely practical although of course Byron had one Byron famously took a bear to live in his set in uh, university at Trinity College Cambridge as a resentment against being told he couldn't have a dog and when he was asked what are you going to do with it he said he should fit sit for a fellowship you just think, yeah, but I mean, a bear, a bear in, in the college, would that be such a bad thing? Everyone gets a little I just cuddle. Think it would be lovely. I might suggest it to my college, but just like, a small one. Just a, just small a noodle genie. <laughs> <laughs> Although, um, bringing, it, bringing it to the other, other side of that, though, there are far darker histories of, of human bear interactions, aren't there? I mean, we talk about bear attacks, but they are vanishingly few compared to the history of what humans have done to bears historically. That is the thing. I think there has always been part of us that has desired to feel pleasantly conquerous over that which is vast and beautiful. So bear baiting has been something that we have indulged in from the medieval period. There are um, 
accounts of it taking place, especially in this sort of Shakespearean Elizabethan heyday of bear baiting, where the bears were too valuable to be allowed to fight to the death. So they fought over and over to the position of great injury and pain, and they would be healed and then cast again to dogs. And they became sort of uh, celebrities. Um, one of them was called Samson, one of them was called Shebos. And so there has always been a there has always been a cruelty in our engagement with with some animals. And then, of course, also bear grease became extremely valuable in the 18th and 19th centuries. It was used to um, make those incredibly elaborate pomaded hairstyles. And so although the vast majority of bear grease that was sold in France and England was just pig fat dyed green, the most expensive barbers to prove that their bear fat was real would keep a bear in a cage outside the barber's shop or sometimes you could go and watch the bear being slaughtered and take your fat away after the event. Uh, one um, enterprising barber said that he had 40 live bears in his cellar specifically for that purpose. So we have always had that hunger that we have. It has always been a little untrammeled and uh, and destructive. And it's a little bit like um, Josephine's need for a pet, isn't it? You, you think not only where they end up, but how they get there. I mean, how do you get enough bears? How do you get, them? Do you get your bears? Exactly. I mean, the, the importing of bears, much like when that giraffe came in 1810 to Paris, famously as a gift to Charles X, it took her two years on boat and train and walking to reach Paris before she could arrive in her custom raincoat and bend and eat petals from the hands of King Charles X. This has always been the way. I think uh, I think the first bear to come to England was about early 13th century. It was a polar bear that was put in the Tower of London and was allowed to fish from the Thames. Yeah, that, that bear I, I, I meet in my own work when I look at um, the Norse, the, the you know, Viking Age settlements in Greenland and how... Those things are so valuable. You have the stories, the Viking stories of how how they're transmitted across the transported across the ocean, and you just think, yeah, humans have just been doing this for millennia, centuries. You know, just on and on and on. Just a reminder: you can support Intelligence Squared and get even closer to the world's most brilliant minds by signing up for Intelligence Squared Premium. Head to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the description to get started. And Apple folks, we've got you covered too. Hit subscribe for some bonus extras on your podcast app. Thanks for all your support. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV.
The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Now, there are some animals that can end up you know, for good or ill, but almost always ill in, say, private collections like Henry's Bear in London. But there are others that are not quite so transportable in live form. Um, you mentioned cuddly killer whales in the gift shop in the Natural History Museum. I thought that our next animal guest would not um, feature in children's cuddly toys. But actually, as I was preparing for our chat, I discovered that there's a list of um, online of seven of the best novel <laughs> toys for children. So I'm clearly mistaken. Um, the clues in the name there. Tell us where the word novel comes from. It's not exactly what you'd want your your baby cuddling up with, is it? Right. So uh, na um, is uh, Old Norse word for corpse and fal is whale. So it's a sort of corpse whale because their um, mottled grey markings were thought to be somewhat corpse-like. But I am very pro the having of a narwhal cuddly toy if it will install in a resident five-year-old a great spark of love for these creatures because they are quite breathtaking. They are again like green and sharks because they live in the water and they live deep. It is difficult for us to know that much about them. They are understudied. But the narwhal's horn which grows out uh, from the upper lip and is in fact uh, a tooth um, and can grow up to two and a half metres. They have always been thought proof that what we have with the narwhal is a unicorn. Because unicorns, of course, existed in the Bible. They're mentioned nine times. They were not thought mythic. And so when we discovered the unicorn, that the narwhal, we thought it was proof of, of, of the, it was called the watery unicorn, the sea unicorn. We thought we had found it. And can you give us a taste of, of how that plays out? In 1584, as Ivan the Terrible lay dying, he called from his bed for his unicorn horn, a royal staff garnished with very fair diamonds, rubies, sapphires and emeralds. Unicorn horns were believed throughout Europe to have magical curative properties. As late as 1789, a unicorn drinking horn was used to protect the French court, where it was said that in the presence of poison, if you poured it into the horn, it would sweat and change colour. And to prove the horn's efficacy, Ivan ordered his physician to scratch a circle uh, on the table with the tip of the horn and to seek out some spiders. Um, 
the spiders placed within the circle immediately curled up and died, and the spiders placed outside it ran away and survived, which was thought of as one of the ways of proving that it had um, curative properties. But the dead spiders did not console Ivan the Terrible. It is too late, he said. It will not preserve me. Whereupon he died. It's most extraordinary story. I mean, I, and, and you can see why, can't you? Why why not a unicorn? You, you, a narwhal exists. Yeah. Why shouldn't there be a narwhal, a unicorn that can um, have power of life and death over spiders as well? And once again, coming up to the um, present day, we're, we're threatening the existence of narwhals without actually necessarily being aware of what we, we're doing, aren't we? So... The two main threats to their life would be climate change is the most obvious because the ice cover shrinking means that they have nowhere to hide from killer whales and nowhere to feed. If the ice continues to melt at the rate it is doing, they will have no time to adapt. And then the other thing is that narwhals, um, like many undersea creatures, communicate in a series of clicks and buzzes a little bit like the humpback whale, but higher in pitch. But with increased shipping to the Arctic, the noise pollution is increasingly rendering them inaudible to their young. So what used to be a kind of silence has a kind of nightclub roar to it. And it's cutting them off from their own their own families, from their own pods of, of other narwhals. And so there's a real danger there that it will change the way that they operate within a, a mere sort of 50 years. So they do, they do have uh, this kind of urgent threat. They, they will not survive if we allow the ice to continue melting, which would be so great a tragedy, because apart from anything else, they are one of the creatures about whom there is still a great deal we do not know. We're not quite clear about why they have horns, because the horn is only about, uh, I think it's under 10%, about 8% of the females and all of the males. So it can't be for survival. And it was thought that they, they you see males jousting with their horns in the water. And it was thought that they were perhaps competing for mates. But then it was thought possible that maybe they are, because the horns have so many nerve endings, it is possible that they are exchanging information about the salinity of the water from which they have just come. So it's less that they are attacking and more like they are map making. And there are also some videos of narwhal horns being used to strike fish in a great shoal, to knock a few of them unconscious and then dip under the shoal and catch them um, in the water. So we haven't fully understood there is so much that we have not yet known and we risk losing it before we have seen it in its full glory. I'm sorry, uh, un- a unicorn has nothing in terms of its magic on a narwhal. Extraordinary. <laughs> well, let- let's come to our final animal guest, the titular hero of your book. I have to confess, I'd never heard of the golden mole before and I am so glad I have now. Thank you so much. Um, it's not actually a mole at all, is it? No, um, its closest relative is um, an elephant, and they are—they are—they will—they're not elephant-sized. They will fit in the palm of your hand, and they are the only iridescent mammal. They are small. They act in in, in very similar mole-like ways. They live largely um, in sub-Saharan Africa, and they live largely under the ground, 
burrowing. They have astonishing hearing, which means that they are able to hear a termite or an ant uh, going past on the surface of the sand and to sort of rear up. They're known in some cultures as dune sharks for that reason. And they are the only mammal which changes colour in light. So some of them are grey, some of them are a kind of yellowy, tawny colour, some of them are silver, but under certain light they shift red and green and purple and gold. And can you read us a little bit from your book that gives a sense of that? It's it's something I, I never knew existed. Yet so, another thing. One of one of the great mysteries is why the golden mole has evolved to glow. Iridescence exists uh, across the animal kingdom. The morpho butterfly, for instance, has a sweep of blue across its wings that we have never yet been able to replicate in our paints and which we think it uses that iridescence to communicate over long distances. And the male rophuous hummingbird has a beautiful orange iridescent neck that changes colour as it dives, which we believe to be part of its mating ritual. So almost all creatures that we know of as iridescent, are iridescent for a reason. But the golden mole is blind. Its eyes are covered with a layer of skin and fur, and it has never seen its own radiance. It lives almost entirely underground in the cooler depths of the earth. And it's currently thought that the fur evolved to be densely flattened and low friction to make burrowing easier. And the iridescent is an accidental byproduct. It's glory without necessary purpose, cast up by the world's slow finessing. So they burrow and breed and hunt and live and die under the African sun, unaware of their beauty, unknowingly glowing. Catherine, that is just so beautiful. Um, I think what I'd like to do now is turn to audience questions and see what other people want to know because there are so many questions already coming up. So let's start with Minnie, who says, your book is clearly intended to help us see the world world differently. Are there any books you've read which have had that effect on you? What a wonderful question. Oh, I love that. Um, So I spent about five years, I've been writing these pieces for the LRB, about 10 of them are from the LRB and the others um, are new. So I've been writing, reading um, people who write about endangerment and who write about about what might be done, are people who I find remarkable. So I think someone like Wendell Berry, who is one of a great, he's a farmer, a poet and an activist, and he wrote What Are People For? A book I find remarkable in the way he insists that what needs to be done is is political. We need to believe in political change because the vast majority of the issues that the burning world faces are structural and they need vast structural changes. So we will need again to believe in politics. We will need to insist to our politicians that they prioritise this above all other things. But Berry does also believe in the idea of shifting one's own life, all the things that we all know about without me having to tell you, you know, consume less, fly less, eat less meat, uh, live more lightly on the world. And he says you do these 
not necessarily because your individual gesture will make a difference, but to tell yourself and those around you that you mean what you are about. And I love that, that you mean what you're doing. I find that potent in amongst his very coherent and sharp political analysis. There is also a sense that your life has a story that is told whether you will or not, so tell it wisely. It's a wonderful recommendation, thank you. Um, Janie asks, we're going down a slightly different track here, I saw the brilliant event you did for Intelligence Squared at Sotheby's last summer, where <laughs> you defended Paddington Bear against Winnie the Pooh. So, are bears your favourite living treasure? <laughs> well, while I do you know, salute the bear as one of the finest living things, um, when I get asked, I write children's fiction as well, and I get asked, of course, what is your favourite animal? And I say the pangolin. Pangolin, a scaly anteater with the face of an unusually polite academic. They are one of the most hunted. They are one of the most trafficked. They are one of the most endangered animals on the planet. They have existed for 35 million years. They, they had nodding acquaintance with the dinosaurs. They have an unassailable right to remain. And the pangolin... Um, the, the pangolin, a baby pangolin, is known as a pangolin pup or a pango pup, and they ride on the mother's back. And when uh, something comes nearby that threatens them, humans or predators, they roll up in a ball, and the baby rolls up in a ball, and the mother encircles it in her ball like a kind of pangolin matryoshka. And that idea that somewhere in the world right now there is a young pangolin encased in its mother, I find so beautiful there's yeah different a different take on the lima balls but bitters <laughs> touching it's wonderful well good one from Rocco if there, if there weren't enough animals in your modern day bestry already what other animals would you like to have included in your book oh there were so many so I have many many half-written essays I would say maybe 20, where I started doing the research. Often the research takes me a month or a couple of months and would find that there perhaps wasn't quite enough in the way of history or poetry or, or I want it always to be more than just the biological glories. I want it to be also an account of us and the way that we are sometimes revealed to ourselves and the way we have interacted. Um, and so capybaras, uh, th those things that look like enormous guinea pigs, um, a man once entered the Guinness Book of Records because he trained a capybara. He was blind to be his seeing eye capybara in Suriname. He was a farmer. And they are not usually trainable, but he had one from very young. And the idea that there was a man who stepped out into darkness and his capybara led him safely home, that is an act of of a great bond and a great faith. And so I tried to write a capybara piece. I haven't yet quite found enough to make it work but if ever I if enough people buy the golden mole I will write a second edition with capybaras okay so so the golden mole must be bought because we need to know yeah. more about the capybara <laughs> I will be buying 100 copies for Christmas to give to <laughs> everyone I know <laughs> so oh what about microbes says Becky they're a huge source of wonder even though we can't see them might they end up in volume two I think so so this has been I think thinking about a lot um the microbe and the sense of the wildness. When we write about wildness, we so often try to write about the mountaintop, uh, you know, the top of Scarfeld Pike. 
but microbes have a real wildness to them. There is much that is unknown and beautiful and vivid and um, counterintuitive about things that exist at microbe level. So I do think it might well be that I am not the person to do it because I think finding poetry written about microbes will take perhaps more determination than I have, but there must be some somewhere. So um, certainly one day I will try to write an essay about the microbe. Yeah, we're going to be Googling it after this event. We'll be <laughs> on the internet looking for microbe poetry for you. Great one from Karim. Do you count humans as living treasure? I do. So it's the final essay of the book, Is the Human. And I did write a longer essay that I then deleted that was trying to get at the idea that we are both a disaster and a miracle. It was something John Donne thought about a lot, that we could be both catastrophic in our capacity for destruction, but also wildly galvanic in our capacity for love and for change. There has never been a decade of human history when we have not taken ourselves by surprise. Um, but in the end, my human essay is a retelling of an essay that was very popular in the Victorian period. And it's, um, it's a real story. I'll tell it very briefly now. It's the story of the Sibylline books, which I'm sure many of you know about already. The Sibylline books are lost. But they did exist. They were real. Um, they were written in Greek poetry in the year 510 BC. And the story ran that a Sibyl, a prophetess, came to offer to the last king of Rome the chance to buy nine books containing all the untold secrets and wonders of the world. And the story of how the books were bought was told by... Um, Aulus Gellius in his Attic Nights and Oregon of Alexandria in the following century and by the late great Douglas Adams in Last Chance to See. And it was, it was seized on um, about 150 years ago and retold over and over. And so this is how the story goes. There was once a great and flourishing city and with feasts and hardworking citizens and one spring an old woman came to the city and she brought with her nine books that contained, she said, all the untold secrets of the world. And she would sell them for the price of one sack of gold. In fact, Aulus Gellius just says, an immense and exorbitant sum. And the townspeople found this hilarious and faintly annoying. And they said, take your books and go. And she said, as you wish. But first, she would burn three of the books. So she lit a fire in the town square and burnt three of the books and went on her way. And the next year she returned in the spring with six of the books and she said, I will sell you these books, these unknown wonders, for two sacks of gold. And the townspeople said, well, that's price gouging and that's not economics and that's outrageous. And she shrugged and asked to borrow a match and three more of the books went up in flames. And the next year was harder, and there were floods, and the townspeople, when she came back, had suffered. And so when she offered them three books for four sacks of gold, they said, well, obviously we can't pay you four sacks of gold, but maybe there'll be something in it. Leave them with us, and we'll form a committee or a think tank, and at some non-specified point in the future, 
obviously we won't pay your four sacks of gold, but we'll let you know if perhaps there's something in it. And she set fire to two more of those books and walked away with the smoke still in the air. And the year that followed was the hardest year and there were frosts and they lost people they could not afford to lose. And so when she came back with her one remaining book, they were ready for her and they had eight sacks of gold. And they said, we've understood how it goes. It doubles every time we have prepared. Here is your gold. And the woman said, well, the price is now 16 sacks of gold. And they said, well, we can't do that. You have to be reasonable. And the woman said nothing and started to build her fire. And the townspeople went away. And in all the tellings, they have this in common that there is a great argument. There is a great fight. But in the end, they scrape together their 16 sacks of gold. And they bring them to the woman just as she is about to put the last book on the fire. And they seize it in hunger and in hope and desperation. And the woman loads her sacks of gold onto a cart and she walks from the city and they call after her. This had better be worth it. And she says, of course it is. Of course. It is gold beyond all measure. And then as she reaches the gate, she turns round and she says, you should have seen what was burned. And I think that story it has always spoken to me so vividly about humanity and treasure and what we can do still. I think that is the most powerful note that we can end this on. Thank you so much. Um, you are as brilliant a storyteller when you're there in front of us as you are on the page. Um, and it's just a joy it's been a complete joy that is us over and out for this thank event thank you so much yeah and, and thank you so much to our audience as well with your wonderful questions um, I think you'll all agree that Catherine Rundle has been the most marvellous speaker as iridescent and as sparkling as that golden mole Catherine so from my guests and from myself thank you so much to everyone and goodbye Thanks for listening to today's episode. Head to iq2premium.supercast.com for even more content made just for our premium listeners, including extended Q&As, event discounts, and our newsletter too. Thanks for being a part of Intelligence Squared.